What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. If there's no third line of poor gleaners in our field, the good news is we can change that. We can change that. We can make a third line of poor gleaners. This week, and I challenge you with this, this week, why not call a lost person? Invite them into the warmth, into the love, into the security, into the protection of our home to have a meal with our family. Why not? So you can tell them just by just being there about the warmth, the love, security, protection of becoming a part of the family of God by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you're saying to yourself, I'm not good at presenting the gospel. I didn't take evangelism explosion, or I, I didn't explode with evangelism. <laughs> and, and I'm not good at presenting the gospel. That's okay. That's okay. Just by having a lost person in your home and letting them, letting them feel, letting them be a part of the warmth, the love, the security, the protection of your home that the Lord Jesus Christ has provided for you, that's a strong gospel message to the lost that you invite into your home. Don't underestimate it. Don't underestimate it. Just that you have dedicated your home and your meal table to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just that you pray before you eat. That's a strong gospel message. And the lost see that if you're willing to open your home. I remember before I was saved how a Christian couple in Cincinnati from Landmark Baptist Church visited our home in Cincinnati before I was saved. And I can still see them now in my mind. I can still see them now. Husband and wife sat on our couch, and there we were, my wife saved, sitting with me, and there I was, as lost as I could be. And this Christian couple came to our house to bring the gospel. And you know what their message was? Their message, they didn't really explain the gospel. They just simply said this, we just came here to tell you that your wife is going to heaven and you're going to hell. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> and that's, that's all we want to say. Now, that's not exactly what I would call a clear gospel invitation. <laughs> no. But you know, God used that. God used that that day because there was something I could not get out of my mind 
and it was not the message that Cheryl was going to heaven and I was going to hell. But what I couldn't get out of my mind was how united this couple was in their devotion to God and in their love for each other. I mean, I watched them as one opened the door for, you know, the husband opens the door for the wife and they sit down and watching, caring for, and I still remember now how they looked at each other. And I, and I remember now how they cared for each other. And I remember now how they took time to visit us and how important whatever message they were bringing it was. But how united they were in what they believed. Their words were not powerful, but who they were and how they cared for each other was a very powerful message. I couldn't shake it off. And what they were and how they cared for each other, for me, spoke louder than their words. Now, if you're willing, just willing, just to invite the lost person to your home for a meal, God can use who you are and how much you care for each other more than your words. Not to say you shouldn't say words, but the great news is that a third line can be made in our fields just as easy as picking up a phone and inviting a lost person, come over. Come on, why don't you come over for a meal? Our family's inviting you. Now we think, God's given me this nice family, our home of love, security, and protection. So what? So that our family can just enjoy it for ourselves? No, the reason that God has given the home, the family of love, security, and protection is to use it to show the loss, the love, security, and protection that God is offering to them just by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't realize how we can use our home as an outreach to the lost just by inviting them to our home for a meal. But to do this, we've got to be willing to open up. We've got to be willing to open ourselves up open up our families, open up our homes. That's what the Bible calls hospitality. Hospitality. The Bible describes hospitality as something that does not come naturally, but that we have to consciously give ourselves to. We have to give ourselves over to it. We have to surrender ourselves to it. As when we gave ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, as when we surrendered ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ when we were saved. See, in that same way, we surrender, we give ourselves over to hospitality, which is why the Bible describes a person who is hospitable as a person who has given over to hospitality, as it says in Romans 12, 13, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. It's a requirement for a leader in the church. It's an absolute requirement for a leader in a church. It says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Leaders, when was the last time we had someone over to our house for a meal? And for leaders in the church who don't feel it's their gift to be hospitable, God's advice is to start. You'll become it. You'll become what the Bible calls a lover of hospitality, which is what it says in Titus 1, 7 through 8. A bishop must be blameless, as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. See, I don't feel that way. My mother and my father said we'd love to learn each other, love each other. So you learn to love. Now, we have tools. We have tools at home. We have tools at home. We have tools at work. The Bible calls hospitality a tool. It says in 1 Peter 4, 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. 
without saying, oh, I wish you didn't get up there and preach about this. <laughs> what is, what, what, what good's a tool if it's never used? What good's a tool if it's never used? You might as well not have it. See our, God sees our home and he sees it as a tool of hospitality and he says, use it. Use it without grudging. Boaz has hospitality written all over him. He's a lover of hospitality. He used hospitality with his field. He was a lover of hospitality. When God looked down from heaven on the field of Boaz, God sees the third line of the poor gleaners and God was well pleased with Boaz. And we can imagine God saying to his angel, now that's a man who is a lover of hospitality. That's Boaz right there. I see it. Isn't it interesting that when the Lord Jesus Christ describes heaven, he didn't say in John 14 too, in heaven there are many mansions and I go to prepare a place for you. He didn't say that. But what he said in John 14 too, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. See, he calls heaven his father's house, my father's house. When we get to heaven, we're going to hear him say, welcome to my father's house. You're going to live in my father's house forever. See, we who were strangers to God will forever be the recipients of God's hospitality. We who were strangers of God will be forever invited into God's house, into the Father's house, as David said in Psalm 23, the last verse of Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If God the Father can use hospitality and open up his house for us to come into and will forever be known as those who live in the Father's house, can we be like God? Can we be like God the Father? Can we be hospitable? Can we open up our homes for strangers to come into, for the lost to come into? When we use hospitality, it's a proof that we believe we're going to heaven and be a recipient of God's hospitality. When we use hospitality to a stranger or a poor, poor person, it's especially a picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. You know, the original concept of hotel was a room in a home, like a bread, bed and breakfast. The room hotel, hostel, hospital, all comes from the same root of hospitality. You know, when I used to go to Lyon in France for business, I stayed in the same hotel along the Rhone River, and, it, and then there was a hill across the river that went up, and at the top of the hill was this big lighted sign, Hotel Dieu, um, God's Hotel, God's Hotel. It was a hospital. And all throughout France, the hospitals are called that. They're called God's Hotel. They're called that. And so Boaz, third line of poor gleaners. And then we have the water vessels. There were water vessels there in the field where the laborers got thirsty, they could drink, and they were probably filled from that famous well of Bethlehem, and that must have been some well because, because David talked about it in 2 Samuel 23, 15, when it says, and David longed and said, oh, that one would give me a drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And then in the field there was a big house, and then in the middle of the field, and smaller rest houses in the field where tired laborers they could go to and they could rest. And then at mealtimes, they would serve roasted grain and and bread, and there'd be this mixture that they would dip in of oil and water and vinegar. And so that's the backdrop for the scene that we have here in verse 4 when it says, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And so into this scene, Boaz is now coming. And we're told that he's coming from Bethlehem. He's coming from the city. 
We're not told what he's doing in the city of Bethlehem. He's probably involved in some sort of important business in Bethlehem. Maybe he's arranging for supplies. We're just not told. But we do know that this was the most important time in his business, was the most important time for the farm Boaz business. There's a harvest time. And everything at this time was tense. It had to go like clockwork. You had to get the grain from the field into the storehouses, get them off the field, and get into the safety of the storehouses. You know, when we, when we were in Lakeside, when, when this little Jewish boy from Los Angeles who thought that tomatoes grew on trees ended up in Lakeside and with 300 goats, knowing nothing about how to take care of goats, it was bad. We used to have... Goats were dying all over the place. We used to have a pile of dead goats that we'd put up on the driveway every day. They kept dying. I couldn't figure out why. UPS man would come and say, more dead goats? And he says, you sure you're in the right business? But anyway, God sent to us Solomon, Solomon Adams, to live with us. And Solomon was, was really God's provision because Solomon was one of 10 children who grew up on a farm in Nebraska. So the minute that Solomon came, I realized, I need this man. And so we put a trailer out on the driveway there, and we said, you will live here. <laughs> and so he lived there for several years while he attended Christian Heritage College. And so, you know, Solomon just taught us everything we needed to know. And he used to talk about how critical the harvest time was. And he told me that in Nebraska, where they have thousands of acres, or thousands, I don't remember, anyway, he told me that the family would sit around, not doing a whole lot while the crop was growing, but when harvest time came, it was all hands on deck. And, and Solomon told me how during harvest time, he would drive tractor around the clock, 24 hours straight. He told me one time when he was nine years old, he was driving a tractor with a baler, be, pull, pulling a baler behind the tractor, and he fell asleep. Nine-year-old kid, he fell asleep. He fell off the seat of the tractor, and he was heading right for the ground, and if he would have fallen on the ground, he would have been killed by the baler. There's dragon behind, but God saved his life by causing his foot to get tangled up in the pedal. And so he was dangling along there, falling anyway, he, and so he's still alive. So the harvest time is a critical time for a farm, and it was a critical time for Boaz's farm. And like any farm, Boaz is in the business of farming. Boaz is a businessman. It's a business operation. And a norm, for a normal businessman like Boaz, he would have a lot on his mind right now. For a normal businessman like Boaz, he'd have the weather on his mind because the weather was out of his control and the weather could ruin his harvest. For a normal businessman like, like Boaz, he would have the safety of his reapers on his mind. It was a dangerous job swinging those sickles sharp enough to cut a man's hand off. For a normal businessman like Boaz, he would have a lot on his mind for the overall, just the operation of the harvest. Everything's got to work. Are there enough reapers? Are there enough sheep binders? Are the carts operating properly? Is there enough water in the vessels to keep them watered? Is there enough food for the workers? Are the storehouses all cleaned out? They're ready to receive the harvest. Are there any buyers lined up to buy the grain? Lots and lots of things on his mind. And those are just some of the things that a normal businessman like Boaz would have on his mind, especially after he's been away from his farm in Bethlehem City, and now he's returning and he's wondering, what's been happening since I've been gone? And a normal businessman would return from Bethlehem during this most critical harvest time, and the first thing out of his mouth when he reached the field would be, where's the foreman? Or uh, where, where's the man who's set over the, my servants, as you described? I need a report. 
from the foreman. How's the harvest going? Are we on time? What's our plan for the harvest? Now, what, what are the unexpected, what are the issues? What are the obstacles that have come up to delay the harvest? See, a normal businessman, while he's on his way back from Bethlehem, his mind is percolating, his mind is churning, his mind is, you know, he's already imagining himself in the fields. And he's imagining what's happening, I gotta get back to the farm. A normal businessman, that's a normal businessman. He would have created all sorts of questions, you know, succinct questions, I want succinct answers uh, to, the, to the questions. As soon as I get back to the farm, that's a normal businessman. His first consideration would be about making money from his crops. The first thing out of the normal businessman's mouth when he got back from Bethlehem during the harvest time would be related to making money from the harvest. Now, Boaz is not a normal businessman. He's far from it. And the proof that Boaz is not a normal businessman can be seen in the first words out of his mouth which has nothing to do with making money from the harvest. That's a tremendous impact in verse four because the tremendous impact comes behind the word behold. That's when God says, you gotta look at this. This is not normal. You gotta really look at this. This is not a normal thing that's gonna happen here. That's why he uses the word behold. In verse four, God's saying to us, do you see the first words out of the mouth of Boaz? This is the critical time of the harvest that we're talking about right here. And look at these words. He says, he, he says, just gotten back from Bethlehem. So with this word behold, in verse four, God's saying to us, do you see what he's been thinking about when he's been traveling back from Bethlehem to his farm? See this word behold, God's saying to us, do you see how unoccupied Boaz is with himself? You see how unoccupied Boaz is with making money for himself from his harvest? You see how Boaz is occupied with other people? Behold. In verse 4, God's way of saying, this is unusual for a businessman. You don't see this every day in a businessman. A businessman's more concerned about my business, but not this businessman. This businessman is more concerned about God's business of harvesting souls. Most businessmen are concerned about their business of harvesting grain. But this businessman is concerned about harvesting souls. That's the word behold. In verse 4, God's saying, Boaz is taking care of my business, which is harvesting souls. And now you watch me take care of his business of harvesting grain. See, Boaz heard the same message I did. After God saves antibodies from this crushing loss, this crushing blow of this lawsuit from the $6 billion Quest Diagnostics, and God protected us through the whole thing. And I, this is as if God said to me, Tom, you take care of my business, I'll take care of your business. And Tom did, and God did. And looks the same phrase came to Boaz, as if Boaz heard God say to him, Boaz, you take care of my business, I'll take care of your business, and Boaz did, and God did. That's the opposite of current natural thinking, which is you take care of your own business, and God will help you take care of your own business. <laughs> you know, God helps those that help themselves. You've heard that before? That's contrary to what the Bible teaches. Because the Bible teaches in Matthew 6.33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And that verse is not teaching God helps those who help themselves. That verse is teaching the opposite. God helps those who help God. Now, Boaz is more concerned about getting this harvest for God than about getting a harvest for himself. That's why Boaz did his job of taking care of God's harvest business. And the proof that he did it is what he says in verse four and five. 
Notice verses 4 and 5. Didn't read 5, but notice it. Notice in verse 4, the first party that Boaz speaks to in verse 4, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to who? Unto the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless thee. Now, 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 now look at verse 5. The second party that Boaz speaks to, verse 5. Then Boaz spake unto who? The servant that was set over his reapers, that be the manager. In whose damsel is this? See, the first party that Boaz spoke to in verse 4 was the group called the reapers. That'd be the large group of laborers. The second party that Boaz speaks to in verse 5 is his servant that was set over the reapers. That'd be the supervisor, manager, whatever you want to call it, the guy in charge. A normal businessman whose first priority is making money from his own harvest business would speak first to the person identified in verse 5, the servant that was set over the reapers. And, and he would first get with his manager or the servant set over the reapers and ask questions. How's the harvest going? How much progress have we made in the harvest? How much harvest have we collected? How much harvest has been lost? How much harvest do we have yet to collect? When, 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 when? When is the harvest going to be here, going to be there, going to be there, and finally going to be finished and safe in the storehouse? See, all that information would come from the manager or the servant that was set over the reapers. And if the first priority of Boaz was his own harvest business, then Boaz wouldn't be wasting his time speaking to the reapers, as he did in verse 4, but he'd be speaking to the manager. That's why it's so important to see in verse 4 those words, how Boaz said unto his reapers. See, one thing is very important from a business point of view. You want everything to go smooth in the business. business you, you have set in place and you honor and preserve the chain of command. And from a chain of command point of view, there was verse 5, the reaper that was the, the servant that was set over the reapers. He was in between Boaz and the reapers. And Boaz, if he's only concerned about his harvest business, he would have respected the chain of command and would not be communicating with the reapers, but he would be communicating with the verse 5 servant that was set over the reapers. From a business chain of command point of view, there's no reason. It's counterproductive for Boaz to be speaking to the reapers because the reapers have got to hear one message. So Boaz is not talking to the reapers about business in verse 4. That's the reason why he speaks directly to the reapers. He's humble. Boaz is a humble person because he, wants, he cares about his workers. He wants to encourage his workers. He's speaking to the reapers as believers. And Boaz realizes among believers, there's no boss. There's no employee status because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we all stand there as forgiven sinners at the foot of the cross. Among believers, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile status because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all stand level. Among believers, there's no male and female status because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all stand equal, forgiven sinners at the foot of the cross, which is what Paul meant when he said in Galatians 3, 27 through 28, for as many as you has been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. So as Boaz looks at his believing reapers, he sees that in Jehovah Jesus, they're all one. There's no class distinction there. 
And so he speaks directly to them. He speaks to their hearts, nothing about business or about work. He speaks to them about their heart needs. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California. Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org.